Hi, I'm Paul Shorey, Senior Fellow at the Center for New American Security, and I'm here with another episode of our Proliferated Drones podcast. Joining me today is Michael Horwitz, Associate Professor at the University of Pennsylvania and Adjunct Senior Fellow here at CNAS. Dan Gettinger, Co-Director of the Center for the Study of the Drone at Bard College. And Alexandra Sander, Research Associate with the Technology and National Security Program at CNAS. Thanks, everyone, for being here. So I want to talk today about U.S. policy and exports. We've talked about um, how drones are proliferating abroad and and where they're coming from. But, of course, the U.S. is a major player here. Alexandra, one of the interesting things in running this project has been over the last two years, we have seen the government policy change quite a bit, actually. Could you walk us through what steps the last administration took in terms of changing their policy on unmanned aircraft exports? Sure. So there's two main policies that came out uh, in the past two years that have changed the way the United States government is thinking about drone exports. Uh, The first came out in uh, early 2015 and is the U.S. export policy uh, for military unmanned aerial systems. And this policy was designed to provide a little bit more specific guidance on how the United States should export drones. And part of it was intended to somewhat relax controls while also reaffirming the applicability of international law to drone exports. Uh, But the really interesting thing that came out of this policy was linking exports to how the recipient country is going to use the system. Uh, So what came out of this policy is principles for proper use of U.S. origin uh, military unmanned aerial systems. Um, So again, the intention here is to reaffirm international law, can ensure that drones are used only in operations in which the use of force is justified to limit Uh, authoritarian uses of drones for surveillance of their own populations uh, and the use of unlawful force. And again, just to sort of reaffirm that U.S. policy that we're engaged in training of recipient countries with drones. We're going to help them limit operator error in a way that uh, you're not looking at really high numbers of accidents or potential increases in civilian casualties from the use of drones. And so this is a policy that's just adjusting the U.S. exports. Uh, What happened a little bit more recently is the U.S.-led Joint Declaration for the Export and Subsequent Use of Armed or Strike-Enabled Unmanned Aerial Vehicles. And this is something that went live in October of 2016. Uh, There's been some criticism of the joint declaration and that it doesn't go as far as the United States new export policy. Uh, But as I read the intention behind the joint declaration, it's really just to provide a starting place for an international conversation about drone exports and subsequent use. And to that extent, it has the same intention of U.S. policy in linking exports to recipient states' uh, intentions and uh, the applicability of international law. Mike, you and I both worked on the U.S. drone export policy when we were in the Pentagon together. Um, I wonder if you walk us through a little bit what the motivations were behind that policy and some of the uh, intra-bureaucratic um, kind of politics within the U.S. government on, on its establishment. 
I think one of the interesting things about the the 2015 export policy is the way it reflected a series of bureaucratic compromises due to the different interests of uh, a few different stakeholders in the process. On the on the one hand, you have the Department of Defense, which is generally focused on building the capacity of allies and partners. And so, from a traditional U.S. DoD perspective, increasing the rate of of drone exports, whether armed or unarmed. To close allies and partners, you know, NATO allies, Japan, you know, th- th- those sorts of countries is is in some ways a no-brainer, and I think DoD has often been frustrated at the slow pace of uh, drone export cases. On the other hand, you have the you have the State Department, but you really have two State Departments. You have the part of the State Department focused on political military relations which tends to to think about these systems more, uh, in, in a way, a little more similar to DOD in that their uh, exports are a way to manage the relationship to the United States and especially close allies and partners. But you also have your, the Nonproliferation Bureau at the State Department, which I think generally tends to see uh, drone exports mostly through the lens of the MTCR and worries that any uh, increase in the rate of drone exports, especially drone exports that are Category 1 systems according to the missile technology regime, so those systems that can go more than 300 kilometers with a more than 500-kilogram payload, that that, would, that might violate U.S. arms control commitments and thus undermine the MTCR. And so what you get in the document, I think, at the end of the day, or is what I saw in the document, which was, which was published you know, after we'd both left the government, were a, a series of compromises designed to, you know, there's something in there for everybody, which I think um, meant has made it difficult for the policy to achieve anybody's objectives. So if one of the dynamics is this tug of war between state and DOD over the, the rate of uh, U.S. exports and who we're going to sell them to and, and how many, have we seen that change at all after this policy? I mean, has it been effective in changing what's happening or still business as usual? You, after the policy was approved, you saw what seemed like there was going to be an initial loosening that the U.S. and Italy have been working together to try to provide, to try to uh, arm the uh, unarmed uh, reapers that the U.S. had sold Italy, and that eventually was approved, although those systems still haven't been armed. You also had movement on unarmed exports to countries like the, the Netherlands and, I believe, uh, Spain. But the uh, but progress in moving forward, even unarmed, uh, drone exports, uh, you know, systems such as Global Hawk or unarmed uh, reapers, has been a lot slower than I think of some of the, the commentary when the policy was published had anticipated. And Dan, as, as there have been U.S. Um, partners and allies, we've had a couple high-profile cases like Jordan, for example, um, that have been seeking U.S. drones and not been able to get them. Where have these countries gone to instead? Well, in the case of Jordan, they've gone to China, as far as we know. Uh, they've purchased uh, the Kaihong 4, the CH-4, from China. Um, now, whether they plan to purchase more or use, you know, uh, you know, use those systems, um, uh, you know, to any on a on a, scale, on a on a large scale remains to be seen. 
Um, but, you know, I think one of the, another one of the constraints following off, off of what Mike was saying was, is that um, with the case of the Dutch deal, for example, there are limitations in the home country on, so they've actually, so they've been, the system has been uh, approved in the U.S. for sale, but actually the Dutch government has not approved the funds for, to purchase that system. Um, and we've seen some pushback in other countries against purchasing U.S. Reaper and Predator drones. So uh, in addition to the constraints on the U.S. policy, side, there's also constraints on the, on the, um, on the country's uh, own, you know, on the, their own policy. And when we have cases where um, close partners to the United States are coming to the U.S. and asking for drones and they can't get them and then they turn to China, what's the effect of the current U.S. policy? What's the motivation behind it? Is it achieving its, its effect? I think this is a question that the the Trump administration, to the extent that it has it is it has thought about this issue yet, it, it will probably turn turn an eye to. You know, we've seen uh, close U.S. partners such as uh, Jordan, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Egypt all acquire armed drones from China. The it would not surprise me if if all had reached out to the U.S. in one way or another uh, prior to acquiring those systems from. China and with those acquisitions from China come Chinese personnel and, and Chinese training and probably a closer relationship between you know close U.S. partners and and China, which from the perspective of some U.S. foreign policy priorities would, is, is certainly not optimal. But the, this is a, a classic example of where you have competing priorities, and the question is you know who wins in the bureaucratic tug of war. Well, I mean, what's the priority though in terms of restricting U.S. exports in these cases if it's to stop? Proliferation is it actually succeeding? You know, I, I think that that if the goal of restricting U.S. exports is to prevent the proliferation of drones, then you know most assuredly the, that you know it is not succeeding, and that these these countries have now acquired armed drones from from China. I think the if one one could argue that the that the U.S. choice has helped bolster the MTCR, which could have then other benefits for U.S. foreign policy as far as, far as pre preventing uh, missile proliferation. But I think that's the route you would have to go with the argument, because between the indigenous production of, uh, of sort of militarily relevant drones and uh, Chinese exports, and now it seems Israeli exports uh, as well, and thinking about the Israel-India deal, the U.S. restraint in exporting uh, either uh, significant surveillance uh, drones or armed drones is not is not having a significant impact in slowing the rate of drone proliferation. Yeah, and I think um, although every, you know the the most stark example is the China proliferation of Chinese armed drones, I think this this trend has been actually building for a while. I mean, we look back at the case of Turkey. You know, they acquired a, a, a NAT drone, the predecessor to the Predator, and for a while, I think they were trying to acquire some Predator U.S. Uh, predators or Reapers. Um, they eventually abandoned that path and went and eventually developed their own uh, equivalent to the Predator, which is the Anka. Um, so, um, and in Saudi Arabia, we, they, the Saudis just unveiled their 
uh, strike-capable drone, which is the Soccer One, which looks a lot like a Chinese uh, uh, knockoff of the Predator. So, um, you know, sort of like sort of like Pakistan's in, quote unquote indigenous drone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, and the Saudis have also reportedly uh, licensed um, either the Wing Lun or the Kaihong Four to be built domestically, produced domestically as well. So, uh, I mean, it really looks like, in a lot of ways, the, this trend has been building for a while, but it's just running away with um, China's running away with the market. And if the policy trend is to continue to link exports with the opportunity to shape subsequent use, if you're not exporting, then you're shooting yourself in the foot and preventing yourself the opportunity to shape that use. Tell us more about that. So this was this um, principles for proper use in the U.S. policy. What what do you see is the intent of that in terms of shaping use? And then and then walk me through kind of these dynamics about um, how that's used. Uh, I think the intent behind these principles is, again, mainly to recognize the applicability of international law. Uh, when you look back and ask yourself the question of what are the norms governing the use of drones, uh, there hasn't really been anything obvious on the international stage beyond the precedent that the United States has created uh, with counterterrorism operations. So I think part of this is to fill that gap and say explicitly that, yes, international law does apply to drone use. And instead of having a system move forward in which you have ambiguous controls over the use of drones, uh, you're looking to apply this existing regime of norms of state behavior. So again, if you're linking exports to principles of proper use, then a, you're recognizing that you're not going to be able to control proliferation. So that's a given. So you know that these drones are going to be spreading. Uh, so you have the export side of it. And then these principles are the US, or the United States effort, effort to say, if we're exporting to you, you're also signing on and recognizing that existing international norms are applying to the drones that you're purchasing. But if China is selling armed drones abroad, they're not asking countries to sign up to these principles for proper use. No, not necessarily. And it's it's unclear to me how whether China is investing in training and uh, operational assistance when they're exporting drones as much as you would get in the United States case of the export of really any type of military platform. So what aim is the current U.S. export policy, or at least the restraint in, in, in exports serving? We've seen a lot of criticism from the Hill. Is there value in the current approach, or should it be relooked by the Trump administration? And I think the, the current policy in some ways, in, in addition to the bureaucratic politics, comes out of a misperception about what about whether we do in fact live in a world of proliferated drones. I think that many uh, Americans and even relatively well-informed Americans have thought about drones as an American capability and so have thought about the, the usage of drones as drone strikes and thus believe that through a restraint on the part of the United States, it could prevent the proliferation of a technology that maybe they would trust the United States to use, though maybe not in some cases. Uh, but it, but they wouldn't necessarily want others to have. I think seeing things through the lens of a, a, a world of proliferation 
uh, should change how people think about the relative costs and benefits of U.S. exports. So if you think, if you have this paradigm of we're the only ones with the drones, then you might want to restrict exports. But if you're in this world of, well, many other countries are getting access to them, then you're much more in the place that Alexandra was talking about where, all right, I want to shape how countries use them. And in that case, exports are a tool, right, for shaping expectations by others. Right. And has the U.S. been using that tool? Or it sounds like without without exports, you you can't wield it. Um, I haven't seen any real increase in the frequency or speed at which the United States is selling systems. Uh, to the extent that we're exporting, it's usually our smaller drones uh, like the Scan Eagle. And we are selling uh, larger systems like the Global Hawk to allies and partners, but uh, we're slow on delivery. So the irony here, right, is if we're really worried about what countries like Iraq and Egypt, for example, might do with drones, that we have the most leverage if they buy our drones and we ask them to sign with these principles and we train them on ways to avoid civilian casualties and exports are a way to do that instead of um, sitting back and, and letting them buy them from China. Go ahead. No, <laughs> no, I was like, yeah, I guess that wasn't really a question. Paul, <laughs> I, I was going to jump. I was going to jump in on the the point about why the, the Trump administration might want to lean forward for like export reasons. I think it's possible that Trump administration may may relook the policy and attempt to increase U.S. drone exports because, quite simply, it fits with the rhetoric we're seeing from the Trump administration about promoting U.S. businesses and U.S. exports. And given that this is a case where much of the U.S. national security community uh, already would be relatively supportive of more drone exports, it, it, this, this seems like a potential win win for the Trump administration, where the defense establishment in the United States would be relatively supportive because they want to build partner capacity, and the Trump administration can make a case that they've they've changed the U.S. policy in a way that increases uh, American jobs, increases American exports. So looking forward, then, if the Trump administration is focused on jobs, exports, and a little bit cooler, let's say, on um, things like international restraint, um, how... I mean, do they need to change the policy? Is the policy the issue? Or is it more about the implementation of the policy? I mean, I think that you you have a couple of different options if you wanted to increase U.S. exports. The policy is written in a pretty broad way that could allow a you know a sort of Rashomon like interpretation. You could you could just take the policy as is, but interpret the uh, implement it differently, essentially. In, you know, in the bureaucratic discussions, just sort of move faster and not change the current policy uh, at all. You could also, a uh, second option, you know, sort of a more intrusive option would be to, to you know, slightly, slightly change the policy in a way that makes clear on paper that the goal is to produce more exports and, you know, especially more, more exports of more advanced systems. A, uh, a third thing and the most intrusive possible option would be to, to write a whole new policy. Any of those things would be possible, but but I do think that the policy is written in a broad enough way, and, and especially you know given you know at least my memory of some of the initial discussions that that were were happening in the government, I think one could imagine a world in which one just interpreted the policy more loosely, 
and thus you, you generated more more exports uh, without having to write a new policy. But you know what they'll actually do, I don't know. One of the interesting components of this is going to be uh, how or whether the Trump administration is willing to provide uh, foreign aid for countries looking to buy U.S. military systems. I know that's been something uh, that's been raised as a question in the current budget. And limiting U.S. aid to countries like Jordan, who are interested in buying our systems and could really build our capacity uh, in the region, uh, is, is going to have a negative consequence. How would cuts at the State Department affect some of the bureaucratic politics within the U.S. government on this issue? Is that likely to change some of the power centers within the government and the, the sort of tug on these different uh, agendas? It is certainly to the extent that, uh, I say this with no direct knowledge, to the extent that from a public perspective, it seems as though the, the State Department has been, uh, has been a little less influential and that uh, the, particularly the institutional State Department has been a little less influential, then you would imagine that the, the Nonproliferation Bureau might have less, you know, why don't we say throw weight in bureaucratic discussions about particular export cases, uh, whereas the you know, relative uh, influence of the Defense Department, while, while always enormous and significant, seems to, seem to have gone up a bit. And so it's, it's possible that, you know, given at least what, you know, what it can look like as an outsider, that, that that shift in, perceived shift in bureaucratic influence could enable a faster approval of exports in some cases. Any other things you guys want to touch on? Uh, is it out of scope to talk about impact to U.S. industry? No, yeah. Can talk about it? Sure. Do you want me to tee up with a question there? Or? Uh, what, uh, let me, I can, let's, let's try this. Okay. Um, what's the role of uh, U.S. industry in this? How should the government be thinking about not just jobs, but also the health of the defense industry and the role that plays in exports? So one of the impacts of drone proliferation beyond uh, other countries contributing to it as they develop uh, more drones and as those programs become more mature is the impact on U.S. industry. They're having to compete. And if we have policies limiting their ability to compete, then really the DOD is their main customer. So if uh, the DOD isn't buying then what are they able to reinvest back into their programs uh, to maintain the United States role as a technological leader and innovator in the drone space? Uh, so it's really in our interest in terms of maintaining our advantage, maintaining this technological lead, and allowing U.S. companies more revenue coming in and drone sales to reinvest in their programs. So you're saying in terms of the impact on industry, it's not just jobs and, and money and shareholder wo shareholders' wallets, it's really about the ability of defense companies to stay at the forefront of this rapidly evolving technology. If you're not competing on the global marketplace, then you can't stay at the cutting edge. Right. And it's not just competing against other uh, developers that are selling to militaries. You're also competing in the commercial space, which is operating at a much faster speed than typical defense industry does. I mean, the, the case everybody wants to avoid is satellites, 
where the you know the story that we've that we now you know tell about uh, satellite export policy is that the you know U.S. was the leader in the production of of uh, commercial satellites you know, prior to reasonably strict export controls being uh, slapped on them, which you know initially created a marketplace void, but over time that marketplace void was filled by other countries developing developing programs, and it's not just that U.S. companies lost those export markets, they also lost some of the incentive to innovate and compete, which made it harder, which has made it harder for the U.S. to stay ahead technologically, you know, especially given the, what we tend to think would be the relative importance of military robotics as a category and UAVs in particular as an implementation of that category, you you certainly wouldn't want to risk that in the, uh, in this case. Can we record uh, my answer to your previous, I think your first question, which was who they're turning to? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, let me try to tee that up again okay. so that Jarrell can yeah. hopefully do some kind of fancy editing here. Um, uh, so when the U.S. is choosing not to transfer drones abroad to partners like Jordan, who are they turning to instead? Well, um, in, in the case of Jordan, they turned to the Chinese and they purchased the Kaihan 4. Um, but originally, I think in the past uh, decade or so, um, other partners have turned to the Israelis. And so we've seen India, for example, uh, purchase many, uh, the Heron system um, and the Turks as well. They leased the Heron system. Uh, Australia also leased the Heron system for, uh, for Afghanistan. So um, originally it was the Israelis. Uh, more recently, it's the Chinese who have been uh, dominating the uh, export market. Okay, unless there's any other like strong opinions, I'm, I'm ready to wrap it up then, okay? Anything else to get in? Um, well, thanks, uh, Mike, Dan, Alex, for, for that discussion on export policy, certainly with um, continued pressure from the Hill and interest in changing the policy, and then uh, a new administration now looking towards more U.S. jobs, more exports. We'll see if there's movement on this issue, and whether we see changes in the coming months. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot.